Good to be here with you all. If, uh, if it's your first time, welcome to the warehouse. My name is Ronnie, one of the pastors here, and glad to have you here. We're going to go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 5, continuing our series through the life of David. 1 Samuel chapter 5, and we're, we're going to bounce around a little bit today as we look at uh, just a few events kind of surrounding David kind of lead us to where we're going today. If, uh, if you're around sports a lot, like, like me, um, if you're new here, you would not, not understand that joke. Um, one, of the, one of the all-time debates, um, and it's, all, it's one of the all-times now, is who is the greatest, Michael Jordan or LeBron James, right? Yeah, I was waiting for somebody to... Um, if you're, you know, if you're an Ohioan, the answer is pretty straightforward, right? Jordan, right? Yeah. Um, I've met a lot of Ohioans that, that, that go with Jordan. Um, but, you know, we, we love things like this. You know, we love talking about this. I'm not, I'm not a super sports guy, um, but I, have been, I cannot count the number of conversations I've been in with people who have been just like going back and forth between LeBron and, and Michael Jordan. It's, it's just, it always comes up. I actually enjoy it. I think it's fun. Um, but we, uh, we love talking about these kinds of things. And, and the question I was thinking about as I was, you know, studying these passages that we're going to be reading here in a minute is why? Why, why do we love debates like that? Who is the greatest? Um, and there's probably a ton of reasons. Um, here, here's a couple, though, that came to mind for me. One, I think, is that praise kind of pours out of us. We, li- we just, we have intrinsically, we have this thing built in us that likes to praise other people, other things. Um, praise just kind of pours out of us. We, we elevate things and we have the tendency to elevate things because our hearts are drawn to worship. So that is just something that is, that God has just sort of put in our hearts. Um, and also I think too, because appointing greatness to something or someone, it, it also gives us a measuring stick, right? So uh, if this person or that person is the greatest or this thing or that thing is the greatest, it means that they have become the standard by which we are able then to measure all other people or things, which in turn is interesting because it keeps that person or it keeps that thing very esteemed in, in our eyes, right? When it comes to God, um, man, you would think there would be no debate when we talk about this idea of the greatest. God is the greatest. And, and by the way, when we say the greatest, we're not saying, he, you know, he's not just the greatest basketball player that ever lived, right? He's not just the greatest scientist when compared with the, with the best scientists, right? He's not just the world's best surgeon when you compare him with all the other world surgeons, right? Um, he is incomparable. He is simply the greatest, period. And yet, we are constantly holding things up to the level of God and debating, in, mainly in our own hearts, what is greater through the things that we worship, through the things that we are devoted to, through the, all the things that we elevate, that we just naturally praise and prop up and make prominent in our lives. So this morning, 
we're going to read about three instances where God's greatness, his power, his holiness, and his praiseworthiness are on display as it's kind of related to uh, David's life here. The first one happens, this is why we started in 1 Samuel 5. We've, we've moved beyond 1 Samuel 5, but we're kind of jumping around because the, the life of David kind of moves us around to get context. Um, but the first one happens, the first instance we're going to look at, happens actually even before Saul becomes king, when the Ark of the Covenant, um, which was this, uh, which was where God dwelled with the people. It was, if you guys have ever seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, maybe that's too old school for y'all. But it was this encasing, this thing that God gave instructions to the people of Israel to build, where he would basically, it would be, it would be seen, and not just symbolically, but actually seen as the place where the power of God dwelled for the people um, of Israel, right? Um, so what we're going to read about here is when the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines, and something really interesting happens as it's related to the power of God. So First uh, Samuel 5, we're just going to read the first five verses, and this is what it says. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon, and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. So if we, we're gonna stop there. If we read further, we would see that eventually the ark was returned. Um, the Israelites were able to get it back. It was returned to them actually from the Philistines um, because they were not experiencing good things while they possessed the ark. The power of God was coming against them in a negative way. But the ark was eventually returned by the Philistines to a man named Abinadab where it remained for 20 years. And so what we're going to get into this morning here over these next passages is seeing what the ark kind of represented to Israel in terms of what it said about God, his power and his holiness and his praiseworthiness. And we're going to start today just kind of looking a little bit about what this represents as the ark was in this place, in this house of Dagon, this foreign god of the Philistines, and just sort of the, the effects of it being in this place set up right, which we read very clearly, set up right next to this foreign god. And what the implications are that for, of, of that are for us. Because here's what we want to look at specifically. If, if God, because God is the greatest, and if God is the greatest, what does it mean for us? You know, I, I don't know what it means for me because LeBron is the greatest or because you're going to tell me that LeBron is the greatest. I don't know what it means for me if I'm convinced Michael Jordan is the greatest other than, you know, I'm going to esteem him. I'm going to look at him, I'm going to look at his accomplishments, I'm going to look at him as his contributions to the sport of basketball, I'm going to esteem him in a way that I put above all others. But in the day-to-day -day of my life, it doesn't really make a lot of difference. It doesn't really make a ton of difference whether I hold to Jordan or James in terms of who I think is the greatest. I mean, it just doesn't really affect my coming and going. 
But if God is the greatest, what does that mean for, for us? What does that mean for men and women who are actually made in his, in his image? So here's our first point. Because God is the greatest, this is what we see here as we look at these first five verses, he must be greatly exalted. So because God is the greatest, if that's, our, if, if that's what we're saying is true, he must be greatly exalted. So here's what we see. Philistines have captured the ark. They bring it to the city of Ashdod. They place it in the house of Dagon right next to their God. Very interesting. Um, which, by the way, would have been this imposing idol, you know, a standing tall in their temple. Now, this is what I learned. I learned that this, this, this thing they did about placing the ark next to Dagon, it was kind of part of this, uh, this tradition, this ancient Near Eastern tradition where a victorious army would come in carrying the gods of the nation that they defeated and place them in their temple. And they would do it as sort of a sign of subordination. Like we have conquered their gods. We didn't just conquer their people. We've conquered their gods. We conquer the people. We conquer their guards, their gods. Here's where it gets spooky for us. All right. When the people of Ashdod arise in the morning, Dagon is lying face down on the ground next to the ark. So without missing a beat, it says that they set the idol back up next to their god. Uh, next, to the, next to the ark. They come back the following morning. And not only is Dagon lying face down like it was the first time, but its head and its hands are severed, right? There's, there's like a, a part of us when we read this and we can think, uh, man, the, the, the Philistines just, they, they don't know who they're messing with right now, do they? They, they just don't get it. They don't, they don't realize the power contained in the ark of the covenant, right? God is, is in, he's, he's inhuman, He's a supernatural power, right? Dagon, just an idol crafted by human hands, which means he is not a living thing. Scripture has something to say about idols, about things that are crafted by people and get all their worship, get all their devotion. Psalm 97, 7 says, all worshipers of image are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, talking about God, all you gods, lowercase g. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. This kind of gets us to the heart of God's power when compared with the lifeless objects that are positioned next to him. The lifeless objects that we position next to him and then exalt over him as the ultimate power of our lives. It doesn't seem real when we look at it in this context, right? Because we don't see ourselves fashioning like, you know, idols. I don't know if that was the shape of the idol, you know. But we don't really see ourselves doing that. So sometimes we have this, this sort of this disconnect, right, when we read about idols in, in, in Scripture. I wonder how hard it is for us to read these passages, though, and remember that this God with this power is the same God and the same power who we claim rules over our lives when positioned next to our idols. Do we actually exalt God above all other gods? Or do we just place him next to our personal gods that we create and fashion for ourselves? And we might not say we're placing him next to our God as something to rule over, but when they're standing right next to each other in the temple of our heart, 
what are the one that we're what's the one we're bowing down to most often? So by point of application, right, we got to ask that question. It's an important question for us to ask, right? I think what we need to remember is that our hearts are our hearts are just like magnets to false gods, which, by the way, are only only gods in the sense that we give them our trust and our allegiance. It would not be an insignificant thing for us all to look at what we might be exalting in our life today. What would you say is the thing that you exalt most greatly in your life? Because it's something. There's no neutrality anywhere in, this, in, the, in the warehouse today with that. You're exalting something. You're lifting something up. Something rises and you raise up to the line of total esteeming for you and for me. What is that? Is it God? Or are you just placing something that you have fashioned and crafted and created next to God? Now we know what happened to Dagon. And in an ultimate sense, anything that we exalt over and above God, anything that we make a God out of is going to fall. It's going to fall. What would you say is the thing you most exalt greatly in your life? Because if God is the greatest, he must be greatly exalted. Let's turn now to 2 Samuel 6 because if God is the greatest, he also must be greatly feared. That's what we're going to look at next. 2 Samuel 6. We kind of continue with the story about the ark. 2 Samuel 6. I just keep saying that because I can't find it. So what we see is that David has finally come to uh, come into the throne. He's king of Israel. Um, the ark has been in the house of Abinadab for 20 years. Now it comes back. David gets it. Saul had kept it there. David retrieves it. And now he wants to bring it back into the city of Jerusalem. And so our point here, like I said, is because God is the greatest, he also must be greatly feared. So we're going to pick up right here. Second Samuel chapter six, picking up with verse five. And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. Verse nine, and David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Let's just stop right there. We're going to read a little further on in a minute. But because God is the greatest, he must be greatly feared. So when God laid out, this is such an interesting passage. It's a fearful passage, too. It's a confusing passage, too. So I'm so glad we're diving into it. 
when God laid out the instructions for the ark, part of his instructions included the way that the ark must be handled. It was, it, it was, as it was being built, it was also to be equipped with rings and poles that fit into the ends of it that were to be carried then on the shoulders of the priests wherever and whenever it was transported. When you look at verse 3, you see that the ark is not being transported that way. It's being transported in a cart that they had built for it. So if you're like me, immediately you look at that and you go like, what's the, what is the big? Like, what's the big deal, right? Well, when they reclaim the ark from the Philistine, they throw a parade and everyone, including David, is singing and making all kinds of noise as they march along the way. At some point, the oxen who are pulling the cart apparently hit a rough patch and a man named Uzzah reaches up to steady the ark from falling. So we, we get this idea that the cart is, is hitting some unsteady ground and maybe it starts rocking back and forth and it looks like it's going to tip onto the ground and Uzzah reaches up to steady it. And he is immediately struck dead. And you just look at that and you go, what on earth, man? You go like, why did Uzzah die? Why did he die? The guy was trying to protect the ark from hitting the dirt. Why did God strike him down? Now, that just seems odd to our way of thinking. It, it just seems so harsh. Some of us might even say, well, man, that just, that's the Old Testament. God just striking everybody down all the time. Right? Why did God strike him down? Well, the reason why God struck him down was because he put his hand on something holy. He put his hand on something that he was not permitted to touch. In fact, if we were to go back to the book of Numbers, uh, chapter 4, um, you don't have to turn there, but we see very clearly that God told Moses and Aaron that only designated people were permitted to touch holy things. He says it like this, they must not touch the holy things lest they die. So the Lord had a reason for the things that he declared holy and, and who was designated to touch them. He had, a, he had a reason for commanding them in this way and his expectation was that that would be obeyed. And so understandably, just like it does to you and me right now, this freaks David out and he becomes angry. It says, now we're not really told exactly why or, or what the anger was sort of centered around. It, it could be because of Uzzah's death. Um, or, or it could be on account of his own mishandling of God's law in terms of building a car instead of um, transporting the ark the way that he was supposed to. Either way, it says David becomes angry, but then he becomes afraid, right? Then he becomes afraid. And he ends up bringing the, the ark to the house of Obed-Edom. David recognizes that the ark is not simply a common object that he can't trivialize. The Lord's presence. He can't trivialize the Lord's holiness. And so the scene, it, it raises a ton of conflict in our hearts when we think of God's treatment of Uzzah. But here's what's interesting, all right? It's not really God's treatment of Uzzah that's the main problem. It was Uzzah's treatment, or we should say mistreatment, of God's holy things that was the problem. The real problem was that at that moment, Uzzah didn't really fear God. 
He didn't take God seriously. Uh, R.C. Sproul, who was a pastor, author, theologian, um, died a few years ago, but he had, has this incredible perspective on the Uzzah incident. I love this. And, uh, and by love it, I mean he just, it's sad, but he gives a good perspective. I, the wrong choice of words. Um, this is what he says. The presumptuous sin of Uzzah was this. He assumed that his hands were less polluted than the dirt. There was nothing about the earth that would desecrate the throne of God. It was the hand of man that God said, I don't want it on this. So interesting, isn't it? Uzzah thought the dirt was dirtier than the hands that would connect with the ark. I think for us, it causes us to sort of step back and maybe ask some questions. Such as, you know, are there holy things in your life that you are mishandling, that you are trivializing? Uh, what does that mean exactly? Well, if God is the greatest um, and he must be greatly feared, you could look at it in this sense. In what ways do you not take him seriously enough? In what ways don't you take him seriously enough? Proverbs 1.7 tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fear as in we're just running away, scared out of our wits, not entirely, but kinda. Fear in the sense that we take God seriously at his word. We see God as being holy. We see God as being all-powerful. We see God as being all-majestic. We see God as somebody unlike most of us, that when he says something, he's serious about what he says. That's so hard, it's hard for us. Because we don't really live in a world like that. Everything is up for grabs, you know, in terms of what we say and how we communicate. And, you know, whatever. You know, just, you know what, just do your thing. I mean, this is kind of how I see it, but however you see it, we're flippant. We're casual. We live in a casualized uh, society. Here's a practical way of thinking about it. This is what helped me. If you've ever stood on the top of, say, the Empire State Building or uh, the Willis Tower, it used to be called the Sears Tower in Chicago, the Willis Tower, or you've stood on the edge of the Grand Canyon or, or Niagara Falls, the nature of where you're standing requires you to not do something stupid, right? Unless you have a, a parachute or God gave you the supernatural ability to fly, um, you don't start playing like games, too, you don't start playing hacky sack too close to the edge, right? You don't start doing things of that nature when you're in that kind of precarity. You're in that kind of precarious situation. I said precarity because my wife loves that word and um, she's gonna be pumped that I said that. But we don't do that when we're, in a, when we're in a precarious situation. You don't trivialize what's lying before you if you're on top of the Empire State Building, if you're on the edge of the Grand Canyon or Niagara Falls. You're a step away from death if you just take the wrong step. So you, you have respect for your environment. When we fear God, when we give him the reverence and the awe and the respect that he deserves, it means that we don't mishandle the things that he has declared holy. All right, let me give you a, let me, let me, 
Let me just go further down and give you even more practical example. When we talk about mishandling something of God that's holy. Let me just, let's take people. People who are made in the image of God. We don't want to mishandle the people who've been made in the image of God and have been declared holy by God, right? Fellow church members is a great example. We take God's people seriously. You take one another seriously. We don't discount people's experience and story and their fears and their anxieties. We, don't, we also don't minimize people's giftings and their abilities. We don't disrespect their age. We don't disrespect their experience. The list goes on and on. Now, is God going to strike you dead if, if you do this? I don't know what God's going to do. Likely not. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. This is a this specific situation that we're reading about right here. But when we practice the fear of the Lord, we use wisdom in how we handle ourselves with the things of the Lord and before the Lord so that we're not mishandling anything. Psalm 111.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it, they have a good understanding. They have a good understanding because they're seeing the Lord for who he is. They're seeing the Lord rightly, right? If you're standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon, you should see what's over the edge rightly, right? You shouldn't just see that as like a painting that somebody painted. And if you take another step, you're going to bust right through it. You should see it as something that you can fall to your death over if you take the wrong step. You should see it rightly. We should see God rightly. We should see one another rightly. We should see the holiness of God rightly so that our lives not only grow in deeper holiness, but we experience a particular kind of flourishing and blessing because our hearts and our eyes and our minds and our hands are giving God his due. We are fearing the Lord rightly. And here's our third point. Because God is the greatest, he must be greatly worshipped. So let's continue with the story. 2 Samuel 6, I'm going to pick up in verse 12, go through 23. Really interesting thing here that happens. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the house of David with rejoicing. And when those who, bef- uh, when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps... He sacrificed an ox and a fat, fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Verse 16. You keep doing those wolf cries. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, also the wife of David, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed each to his house, the party going on right now. Verse 20, and David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today 
uncovering himself today before the eyes of, of, his, sermon, of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will make merry before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. And I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And in verse 23, it says, And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. That's a cheery ending for us here this morning. But it gets us into this idea of if God is, great, if God is the greatest, he must be greatly worshipped. So it's a, it's a little bit of a, a strange and a surprising ending to our story. David feels like he is able to safely bring the ark into the city. So he resumes this parade, this celebration with all kinds of sacrifices and shouting and rejoicing and dancing. And by the way, this isn't like the way Baptists don't dance or basically Baptists like us don't dance, right? Very controlled, very moderate, right? Making sure we're not turning into Pentecostals, right? Um, verse 14 tells us David danced before the Lord with all his might and we get a sense of what all his might looked like from the reaction that Michael, his wife, had in verse 20. She was not impressed. She was full of embarrassment and shame. David had this uninhibitedness, this, this, uh, this extreme way, this demonstrative way of dancing before the Lord and worshiping him, and it embarrasses Michael. And she wasn't shy about letting David know her feelings. But David doesn't receive the criticism. He's basically like, hey, you think that was dancing? He's like, I'm willing to go way further than this, is what he's telling Michael. It's like he's saying, I'm willing to look a heck of a lot more ridiculous than what you just saw, girl, right? It feels like that's kind of what he's saying if he was using our language, right? And what happens next, though, it feels, it feels sharp, right? But David basically reminds Michael that God has appointed him king over her father, Saul, and that her dishonoring him was going to cost her any chance of being mother of a future king. Yikes. That's a lot. So what do we, what do we make of this? What do we make of this Michael business, right? Well, if you notice in verse 20, Michael is referred to as the daughter of Saul, not the wife of David. So given the sharp response she had to David, it, it kind of appears that Michael is still carrying the heart of her father Saul toward David and maybe toward the Lord. David's refusal to have a child with Michael who could potentially be the, you know, a child who could eventually be the future king of Israel means that the family of Saul would be completely cut off then forever from the royal line. David was serious about worshiping God and serious about the people he was surrounded by being unashamed worshipers alongside him. This would be one of the, we might say the qualitative differences between David and Saul's reign is where Saul disobeyed God, didn't worship God rightly. He didn't offer right sacrifices because his heart was not for God. 
David being a man after God's own heart, it was reflected in the way that he worshiped God. David was setting up a, a model for how he intended to reign and rule. He set up a model for how he wanted the Israelites to see him and what was acceptable and what was appropriate worship uh, before the Lord. The question for us is if God is so great, why does our worship of him, why does it pale in comparison with other things that we praise, right? Now listen, does that mean we have to be as demonstrative as David? I mean, one of the obvious takeaways from the text is whether or not we are ashamed to be uh, demonstrative in our, in our worship in front of others. Well, I think we need to look at, at the context of where we worship, right? Different traditions have different ways of demonstrating worship. Being overly demonstrative in a church that doesn't practice worship in, in, a, in a really extremely demonstrative way, I said the word demonstrative 18 times, um, could be distracting, right? It could be attention grabbing. But I think the bigger principle at work here is that David didn't want anything obscuring the heart he had of worshiping God, which for him came out very overt. He didn't want people's opinions. He didn't even, he didn't even want his wife's disgust over his actions to prevent him from giving himself wholly to the Lord, both physically and spiritually. So it's a good idea to ask what might be preventing you from doing the same? What, what is in your life that prevents you from giving all of your life in worship to Jesus? That sounds really big when I say it like that, right? But here's what I mean. It's not just dancing or, or you know, not dancing on Sunday, right? Because we, we don't dance here. In fact, I, I don't know what Scott would do if one of you guys just ran to the front and started dancing, you know? He probably would want me to tackle you, but I'm not violent. Um... But the question remains, what in your life prevents you from giving all of your life in worship to Jesus, right? In what ways in your life, um, what are the things that, that, that is preventing you from offering yourself to the Lord? And again, not, I'm not just talking about solemn things, quiet things, dark things, sober things. Um, how do you joyfully give your entire life to Jesus in the day-to-day -day with all the different things that you do, the places you go, the things you experience, does he get everything? See, there was a moment here for David where God was getting everything from David. Does God get our everything? What's in the way of God getting everything from you? That's a scary line, by the way. I, I, think, I, I think I wrote that, deleted, wrote, delete. That's how it works, you know, when you're preparing a sermon. You know, the things that end up there, you're like, I don't know, it feels like it should. So I kept that one in there. What's in the way? What's in the way? There's something about worshiping God with all of our might that will be transformative to our hearts and our lives. It doesn't mean it, it vanishes all of our problems. You know, it doesn't mean it erases all of the anxiety and the struggles. It means that it prepares our heart more greatly to receive those things that are difficult and to continue to trust God more greatly when we are faced with those types of things. What if you developed a heart for Jesus as great as David's was? What if you, 
What if you saw your life in light of the, the beauty, the glory, the majesty, and the greatness of God as we see through Christ? What would, what would happen to your life? Here's a few things that may happen. Your life will be put in greater perspective because Jesus would be the greatest thing about it. What's hard about all this is perspective. And all of us are, have lost some perspective on some things today, right? But our lives will be put in greater perspective if we were able to give ourselves to God the way David did. Secondly, our life will become less self-focused because we would have a greater focus placed increasingly on Jesus. Our lives would become less about us. They become more about Jesus and therefore become more about the people around us that will receive Jesus from us. And then finally, our, your life would be a greater blessing to others because they would meet Jesus when they come in contact with you. If your life is an offering, like we sing, if your life is a prayer, if your life is given over to God in worship, what would it look like for you to exalt fear and worship Jesus as the greatest thing in your life? What might be transformed in your life because idols are not competing, they're not sitting next to Jesus? What might God restore because you're not mishandling holy things, but you take his word seriously? What kind of spiritual transformation might you experience if you worship the Lord with all of your might? When Jesus is the most important thing in your life, all the other important things in your life, they gain perspective. The big things we overexalt, put in their place. The important things that we are overly flippant about, they become more holy in our eyes and in our hearts. For David, exalting God above all others was how he survived the attacks of Saul. The psalmist writes, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. Listen, I cry out to most, God most high, to God who fulfills his promise for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts. The children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. The answer to all of these things that we are in the middle of, that are pressing down upon us, who have their teeth in us, who have their spears in us, is the exaltation of God who is the greatest. That is the answer. When I say answer, that doesn't mean that's the fix. Nothing gets all the way fixed until glory. But that is the answer for the longing and striving and dissatisfaction that lodges in your soul and in my soul. So we want to exalt God. We want to fear God. We want to worship God. We want to understand the seriousness of giving ourselves over to the glory of God. When we practice communion, we are saying, Jesus, you are the greatest because the cross tells us that. 
Because the resurrection tells us that. Because his ascension to God, his ascension to the right hand of God, his ascension to the throne of God, right next to God, where he listens to our prayers, he delivers our prayers to God. Because all of that is true, because God is the greatest, because Jesus has made all of this possible to us. It means that we don't have to live lives. We are constantly just, all right, I'm setting up that idol. Set up that other idol in House of Martin, right next to God, right next to my 16th ESV Bible on the shelf, you know? If God is the greatest, let's worship him for who he is. When we take communion, that's what we're saying. We're saying, Jesus, you did the greatest work that could ever happen to mankind. When we take that bread, we're saying, that work that you did by giving us your body, that work you did, you did as we drink the cup, as you shed your blood, it changes everything for us. It actually allows me to remember that my idols have been taken down by the work of the Lord. I don't have to establish those idols. I don't have to put those up in my house. I don't have to, have to set those up and construct those in my temple anymore. The Lord inhabits that space. So when we take communion, we're reminded of the greatness of Jesus Christ. So we do some work inside internally. We give ourselves some opportunity now to surface those idols. And if anything like that is surfacing in your heart, we're going to take a minute and pray. And you can give that to the Lord. And you can repent to him. And you can set your heart straight with God as you come up and be reminded of his sacrifice. Be reminded of his resurrection be reminded of his ascension and his place in our lives. So I'm going to pray and the ushers are going to come up and then we're going to take communion together. So let's, let's bow our heads and pray. Lord, there's a lot in this passage this morning. When we look at your power, we look at your glory, we look at how we respond to it, we look at the things that we miss. And so, Lord, the, the idols that exist in our lives... Um, the way that we mishandle your holy things, the way that we trivialize you and others. Lord, I pray that you would surface those things in our hearts right now and in our lives that, are, that, are, that we're not giving, that we're giving too much space for, that are in the way of worshiping you. And Lord, I pray that as we take communion this morning, as we, as we, Obey this command that you gave us. You said, remember me. Eat, eat of this bread. Drink of this cup. Remember my death. Remember the future that exists for you with me because of the work that I have done. So Lord, we remember that. We remember that you have torn down those idols that just tear us down. And as we take communion now, as we remember you, as we are strengthened and nourished by your grace, by your love, Lord, I pray that you draw us into deeper worship of you. Lord, that you destroy the idols in our life that just, in the end, um, threaten to destroy us. And Lord, if anybody here is somebody who has not seen you as savior of the world and of their life, Lord, would you do a work in their heart? Would you draw them to repentance of seeing, seeing their sins, seeing the idols in their life? Lord, would you meet them here today? Um, would you meet their longings and their dissatisfaction and their hope for 
something more, their hope for something better. And um, all the disappointments that somebody may be wrestling with today and maybe some horrific things that they've gone through. And Lord, you've told us that when we're full of burdens, when we're full of just heavy labor, when our heart is tired and our hands are tired and our head is tired, that if we come to you, you'll give us rest. You will be our God. So Lord, would you do that for somebody today as they come to you in humility and honesty? Would you change their heart? Would you transform their life? Because of Christ, it's possible. So as we take these elements now, Lord, we celebrate that. We're grateful, Lord, that you've torn the idols away from our lives so that we can esteem you and exalt you and fear you and worship you. Would you do that work in our hearts fresh again, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.